Well, then uh, we come to the quintessential classical apologist for our authors, and that is Norman Geisler. And he was one of Christian's apologists who advocated a formal theology, or a formal theory, however, of the apologetic method is Norman Geisler from 1932 to 2019, whose books on apologetics, philosophy of religion, ethics, and biblical studies have made him a key figure in Christian apologetics. Find a topic that you're interested in, Geisler's probably written something about it in some fashion. (laughs) He's authored, co-authored, and edited some 60 books, and that's probably a low low number there. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and so although uh, Geisler is, uh, you know, evangelical Protestant in his theology, he is a convinced Thomasist in his philosophy and apologetics, right? He, he, his approach to apologetics proceeds in this very careful two-step process that we've been talking about, right? First, the apologist builds a case for theism, that is, that God exists, right, by demonstrating how it conforms to rational criteria uh, used to evaluate the truth claims of competing worldviews, and then having shown that theism is true according to these criteria, the apologetist, apologist then they uh, present the evidence for the historical truths claims of Christianity. So we see this two-step apolog- uh, process again with Geisler. Right. So his two most important works for our purposes are his philosophy of religion, which is the second edition, which was co-authored by Winifred Corden, and Christian apologetics. In view of his influence in contemporary evangelical apologists, we will uh, review the arguments of both of these books in some detail as kind of that uh, staple for what they're trying to uh, say is uh, if if you're looking for uh, the most uh, aligned uh, person to the discipline of a classical apologist, uh, this is probably going to be the the person and the argument that you're going to align to the most uh, for, for, for a good mirror of it. Right. So the most consistent use of this classical approach is what they're suggesting, uh, Geisler. So Geisler's first book, The Philosophy of Religion, he divides the philosophy of religion into four major divisions. Uh, It deals with religious experience, God and reason, religious language, and then the problem of evil. And so our authors want to just touch briefly on each of these subjects in turn. We've got to talk about the problem of evil yet again. We're going to be, we're going to be masters <laughs> yeah. of evil soon. That's right. <laughs> okay, we probably um, already are, but <laughs> I won't by, go there. By, by nature, yeah. by nature, That's yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first one is religious experience. And so the issue dominating the first part of Geisler's philosophy of religion is whether experiences of God or the supernatural can be considered rational. Geisler argues that they can because the history of mankind, secular and sacred, uh, supports the uh, thesis that by nature, uh, by nature, man has an irresistible urge to transcend himself. We're always thinking of what's up there, what's out there, what's above us, what, you know, there's got to be more to life than this. Uh, 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 all the Disney songs, uh, you know, the, 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 the girl, the princess wants more. They want to go out. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's ingrained in our storytelling. But nevertheless, he argues that verification is necessary to discern that there really is a God to fulfill the human need for transcendence. Right. So it's, yes, we have this kind of need for transcendence. We have, you know, this religious, religious experience longings, but uh, he's, he's arguing here that it takes more than just that to, to show uh, that God exists. And so he moves to God and reason. 
he he talks about that verification can be found in philosophical uh, theistic proofs. So in the second section of his book, uh, it's entitled God and Reason, Geisler examines the function of theistic proofs. And in this section, he defends a version of the cosmological argument, right? That um, causality and contingency and that kind of thing. All the good ones, yes. Yeah. Well, next, uh, the third part is uh, for religious language. So the third part of his book focuses on the problem of religious language. So the, uh, even back then, he were arguing about Christianese and whether or not it's it's, it's a good thing. <laughs> a little different, a little different. Okay. Yeah. Well, even if a sound argument for the existence of God can be made, how can we uh, in, intelligently speak about that which transcends all experience? You know, uh, here's um, here's uh, I think Dawkins has made this point. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has. Oh, you know, if if there was a God, it would be the same thing as as us uh, communicating with ants. It's just not possible. Oh, well, okay, it it might be a little different if we made the ants and we'd probably want to <laughs> find a way to communicate with our creation some way. So uh, uh, the, the, the metaphor is lost on me for, for that one. But, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I communicate with ants when I, you know, <laughs> step on them. <laughs> yeah. When I step on them, they yeah. stick, you know, when I spray down my, my porch, they, <laughs> they, that communicates stay away and they right. stay away. Go That's figure. Right. right? <laughs> if, for some odd reason, uh, they don't abide by the property rights that I maintain in contractual <laughs> form. So we, we, I might have to use a, a different persuasive means there. <laughs> so okay, so how how can how can uh, we uh, uh, ascend to knowledge that is above us? Is is what Geisler is saying? Geisler maintains that every negation implies a prior affirmation, and that therefore purely negative God talk is meaningless. The positive knowledge of God implies by negative God talk requires that language about God be understood uh, univocally as having an identity of meaning when referring to both God and creatures to avoid a descent into religious skepticism. All right. Yeah. So there is a meaning there is at least in some, uh, um, uh, uh, way of looking at it. Some of the things that we talk about is the same way that and see things is the same way that God does, or at least let's put it this way. Some of the way that God sees things is the same way that we do. So there's a univocal, at least in some of our religious uh, language is what he's getting at there. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's, uh, he's dealt with now uh, religious experience, God and reason, religious language. And then finally, of course, he, he jumps on the problem of evil, right? And then he says in the fourth and final part of his uh, philosophy of religion, he considers three ways to relate God and evil. Uh, the first, atheism affirms the existence of evil, but denies the existence of God. And so Geisler argues here that although God has not yet destroyed evil, he will do so. And in a way that leads to the best possible world. The second alternative uh, from atheism uh, that, you know, God doesn't exist, is illusionism, right? This is the denial of the reality of evil. And Geisler points out here that illusionism cannot account satisfac- satisfactorily uh, for the origin of the illusion of evil. And then the third alternative affirms that both God, though not necessarily a biblical God, and evil kind of exist. Uh, and some options in this category excuse me, that he talks about uh, our dualism, finite uh, godism, sadism, and uh, these are incompatible, he argues, with theism. 
Well, after examining the alternatives available to the theistic God, Geisler concludes that uh, the morally best world is better than a morally good world or than no moral world at all. So that this world, despite its temporary degradation due to sin, is the best way to the best world will eventually be confirmed at the end of history in the final mm-hmm. judgment. Right. So, you know, not to, to belabor the point, uh, we've talked about this with uh, um, Scott Christensen's What About Evil? And so uh, th- this is uh, at least Geisler's uh, take on on um, how to fulfill the biblical Christian God uh, with the presence of, uh, the, of evil. Yeah. Good. All right. The uh, uh, next, what our authors do is take us to uh, Geisler's uh, book on Christian apologetics. And here they suggest that this textbook on apologetics is divided into three parts. In the first part, he considers how to test competing truth claims. And then having chosen a test for truth, so he chooses one, he applies it to the major worldviews in the second part and argues that theism, the view that the world was created by God, was able to perform miracles, is the true worldview. And then finally, in the third part, he presents evidence in support of Christian theism. So he gives, uh, in the first part then, uh, how to test competing worldviews, and and we'll see those in, in just a second. <clears throat> And then he he uh, uh, you know he applies that to the major worldviews, and, and then we finally come to the place where the Christian faith then seems to be the best one. And so, uh, first uh, is the discussion of his apologetic method. <clears throat> Geisler critically evaluates seven methodological approaches to the question of God: agnosticism, rationalism, fetism, experientialism, evidentialism pragmatism, and combinationalism. He concludes that each of these epistemological methods makes a contribution, right? So it's got something good about it, but is inadequate as a test for truth. In their place, he proposes uh, uniformability uh, as the test for falsehood of a worldview and undeniably as the test for the truth of the worldview. So is it unable to be affirmed or is it unable to be denied? Right, exactly. And so using these two tests then, unaffirmability and undeniability, Geisler seeks to demonstrate that all the non-theistic worldviews are directly or indirectly unaffirmable, right? They can't be affirmed, at least logically speaking. And only theism is affirmable and undeniable. And so he examines several competing worldviews, deism, pantheism, panentheism, atheism, and he argues that all of them fail uh, the tests for truth that he has uh, uh, given us here. Well, and then finally, uh, Christian apologetics he says, uh, having established the validity of the theistic worldview, Geisler then deals with miracles, the role of history, and the establishment of historical reliability of the New Testament the deity and authority of Jesus, and finally, the inspiration and authority of the Bible. So there's kind of your second approach. So right. we've established uh, kind of uh, uh, the answers not to, to uh, the, that are possible. He's whittled them down to say that they're uh, not good answers. He's provided uh, a, a secondary answer uh, that he believes is uh, 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 the, the, the best explanation. And now he's going to say, uh, within the scope of that theistic argument, here's the uh, main Christian argument, and that's the the thrust here of of the his, uh, the historicity of the Bible, of the New Testament especially, and then uh, who Jesus is, and then the inspiration and authority of the Bible in in 
uh, specific general. Right. And so we see, again, this kind of two-step approach, right? So you you show that um, God exists, uh, a particular kind of God exists, a theistic God, and then Christianity meets uh, that uh, theistic God that he's shown to exist. All right. Uh, <clears throat> next, our authors um, move to a, a Catholic theologian, Peter Kreeft. And Kreeft is a Roman Catholic professor of philosophy at Boston College. Uh, he's written numerous books and has emerged as a Christian apologetic who uh, works <clears throat> are popular among Protestants as well as Catholics. And so even more than Geisler, Kreeft models his approach on the work of Thomas Aquinas, right? Go figure, <laughs> Thomas Aquinas, right? This Catholic theologian. And so the crux of his message, that is Kreeft's, is that the apologist presents arguments for the Christian position from premises accepted by the unbeliever as well as the believer, right? So we can step on kind of neutral ground and look <laughs> at premises that both positions support, right? Right, exactly. Well, and then we move uh, once again to William Lane Craig. Uh, Craig's work has put him in the forefront of evangelical apologists in the early 21st century. The scholarly depth and range of his work and his effectiveness as an apologist are very impressive. Craig has written one of the best recent textbook introductions to the subject of apologetics and co-authored a major textbook on Christian philosophy. In addition, he has publicly debated atheists and skeptics worldwide with great success. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if you're debating William Lane Craig, good luck and also congratulations. <laughs> yeah, really. He, uh, yeah, he's a extremely good debater. Yeah. Um, in most of his early works, Craig uh, did not identify himself as an advocate of any particular apologetic methodology. However, in uh, 2000, Craig defended the classical model in a book on different apologetic methods. I think we went through that book. Uh, uh, there was five, four or five apologetic methods. Uh, yeah, remember? it was uh, the Counterpoint series from Ron uh, of five of uh, five. Um five uh, ways of uh, Christian apologetics. Yeah, yeah, and so Craig in that book defends uh, the um, uh, the classical approach. So uh, he's a classical apologetics and it may also be seen in his apologetic textbook and in some of his more wide ranging debates where he follows a fairly traditional classical uh, pattern. So you have the book there? Five views yeah, of apologetics. Get yeah. a little closer to the camera there. Five views of apologetics. Uh, William yeah. Lane Craig is one. Gary Habermas is another one. John Frame, and then uh, Kelly Clark and Paul Feinberg are the yeah. are the five. And so the, uh, Craig does take the the classical um, model there, um, and uh, and really um, goes goes well with it. I, right. I, that that was one of the first books that we did on the Counterpoint series. I I I, I haven't read a bad Counterpoint series yet, but I think that uh, that book does a, a wonderful job of just letting people talk in a written form. It, it's it's kind of the best version of the debate because you're not getting the rhetoric of, oh, he argued well because he spoke well. It's uh, these people who are uh, well advanced in their field uh, are able to communicate well in the written word and are able to argue uh, individually and not be interrupted or have an audience to sway you. I think it's a, it's a, it's a great series that uh, should be checked out. And IVP has, uh, InterVarsity Press has uh, their version as well. I think it's Spectrum. Uh, but uh, as far as, as far as this one goes, uh, this was kind of one of our first ones that we did when we uh, were looking into, um, into uh, presuppositionalism. 
Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Craig opens by presenting arguments for the existence of God and follows these arguments for the truth of Christianity based mainly on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection and deity. So again, he follows this kind of two-step approach, right? Let's prove that God exists or shows that God exists. And then finally shows that Jesus Christ is indeed the true and true God. And um, because of his uh, resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think Craig's kind of known uh, to for the Klom argument or at least maybe popularizing it or systematizing it or actually, I think, uh, also building off of it. And so that's definitely going to be uh, in the classical camp of, of here's a, a kind of a general um, uh, theistic view and then moves on to. Uh, obviously, Christianity for him. Well, here will we uh, present an overview of his textbook on the apologetics, Reasonable Faith. Craig begins by exploring the question, how do I know Christianity is true? Well, according to Craig, the key answer to answering this question is to distinguish between knowing Christianity to be true and showing to be, uh, Christianity to be true, which he does talk about in uh, the Five Views uh, book as well. In fact, I think he's the, the first uh, person to kind of kick off the, the discussion of everything. So we know Christianity is true primarily by the self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit. We show Christianity to be true by demonstrating that it is systematically consistent. Right. And so I think this is a helpful distinction here, right? How do we know that Christianity is true? Well, we can know it because the Holy Spirit lives in us and he's, you know, he authenticates his witness authenticates uh, the truthfulness of Christianity and of God's word, right? And then Craig says, but that's different from showing, right? And so he wants us to make that distinction distinction there. And so rather than launching immediately into arguments for the existence of God, however, Craig begins his apologetic by showing the absurdity of life without God, right? In other words, if God does not exist, then life is futile. Uh, you know, if the God of the Bible does not exist, then life is, doesn't have any meaning. It's, it, um, it's uh, you know, it's meaningless. However, if God does exist, life has meaning. And so only the second of these two alternatives, either God doesn't, doesn't exist and so life is futile, or God does exist and life is meaningful, uh, only the second of these alternatives enable us to live happy and consistent lives. And therefore, it seems to him that even if the evidence for these two uh, options were absolutely equal, he's, he argues, a rational person ought to choose biblical Christianity. So notice this is kind of a Pascalian kind of thing, <laughs> right? At least how he starts off. Now, he doesn't use this as proof for the existence of God, but he kind of, we might say, warms up, you know, our thinking by yeah. getting us to think through this meaningful, meaningless, feudal type of dichotomy and distinction between mm -hmm. life with God and life without God. Yeah. And I think if, if you watch any of his debates uh, that, uh, the subject tends to just be, you know, is Christianity true or is Christianity the best possible one? There's definitely a good um, uh, uh, terminology when when you have a, a decent debate is is there's usually just one um, kind of side that presents its its case. And so uh, if if uh, the debate pr uh, proposition is uh, tends to be swayed in uh, a positive Christian point of view he tends to use this type of argumentation to at least um, um, make its way th uh, to, to the cross-examination phase. Given that God's existence would give meaning to life, 
we do not believe in God in an irrational attempt to convince ourselves that life has meaning. We right. believe in God because there is proof that he exists. Craig's favorite theistic argument is the Kalam ar cosmological argument, which was originally formulated by medieval Arabic Muslim philosophers and um, somehow got preserved through all the fighting uh, in that part of the world and <laughs> yeah. has come out and, and Craig has definitely popularized it and, and formulated upon it. Craig concludes that amazing as it seems, the most plausible answer to the question of why something exists rather than nothing is that God exists. This means in turn that the first and for most fundamental condition of meaning of to life and the universe is supplied with that. And so the Kalam argument has, has this uh, formulation that um, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Uh, the universe begins to, to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. Well then, what was that cause? And so the universe can't cause itself because uh, it's a thing that has a beginning. <clears throat> we we know this, especially now, uh, um, there's not really a solid state uh, type idea of, of, uh, of cosmo cosmology uh, in effect. Uh, you know, B Big Bang has kind of popularized that. And so uh, the explanation for the, the thing that caused the bang or the person that caused the bang, Craig's going to put forward is the best explanation is, is something that is above and outside the universe, uh, exists without a cause, and that one is God. And so therefore, uh, since he is the cause, he supplies the meaning to the universe and to his creatures. Yeah, yeah. And then in the fourth chapter, Craig defends the possibility of miracles. So he's shown that God exists, right? That God is the first cause and that sort of thing. Uh, and so he concludes then that uh, the philosophical objections from such thinkers as Spinoza and Hume uh, regarding miracles are without merit. So he deals with that in his fourth chapter. And then in chapter five, he considers the question of the possibility of historical knowledge, you know, as a preclude to the examination of the historical claims of the New Testament concerning Jesus Christ. And here, the major error to be combated, as he sees it, is historical relativism, the belief that our dis, uh, distant, you know, how far we are from the past and our lack of neutrality or objectivity makes it impossible for us to know what actually occurred in the past. He doesn't think that's the case, right? <laughs> he answers, right, this objection uh, that we lack direct access to the past. He argues that we may test theories about the past using the same criterion of systematic consistency that we use in other matters of truth. And right. so, yes, we have distance from the past, but that doesn't mean that we can't, at least to some extent, know what happened. And mm -hmm. so we have to test those claims in the same way that we test other uh, uh, matters of truth. And he thinks we're, we're able to do that through this notion of systematic consistency. Right. The, the danger of, of, of being super skeptical in that fashion is, uh, well, I mean, the, it's always going to be uh, before the time I was born, my own memories. But even I mean, you could you could uh, knock yourself on that. But anything before <laughs> the advent of the camera or or the Xerox machine, uh, you know, uh, is Abraham Lincoln. Uh, 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 was he a real person? Was was he the president at the time during the Civil War? Well, hold on. You you believe in a, a civil war as well? No, absolutely not. Uh, no, nothing existed back then. And you can't be neutral about it because you're an American or you're a historian. <laughs> you, your livelihood depends on there being a civil war. And so, uh, you know, that there's uh, there's the, the super skepticism leads to that type of absurdity. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, in chapter seven, then uh, Craig turns to the discussion directly to Jesus' claim about himself as reported in the Gospels. The importance of Jesus' claim to deity is that they provide the religio-historical context in which the resurrection becomes significant as it confirms those claims. So again, it's not just uh, there was a guy who's traveling around Jerusalem, has some friends, uh, he's died, and all of a sudden he's resurrected. You know, th there's a lot more to that. Uh, you know, the the a good pastor is going to pull out uh, uh, a lot of Old Testament citations to that, a lot of historical uh, approaches of of the importance of a Messiah, especially in in the the Roman world at that time in Jerusalem, and uh, all the the nefarious uh, actors around it, and then also uh, what everyone got wrong at at that point in time, and uh, where they sh should have recognized that, and even. Even the text claims that as well, and uh, th there's that uh, argument from embarrassment that uh, that really comes out a lot in in um, the the affirmation of the historicity of 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 of, uh, of the New Testament. Hmm. Yeah, and so our authors tell us that the structure of Craig's, uh, Craig's apologetic closely parallels that of surprise, surprise, Norman <laughs> Geisler, right? Which uh, some minor differences, obviously. Uh, both begin, begin by considering matters of epistemology, right? The nature of knowledge and so forth, questions about knowledge, and then move to defend the existence of God primarily on the basis of a form of the cosmological argument, right? Now, Geisler uses a different form than the uh, Kalam the, that Craig uses, but they both you know, basically use that argument. Mm -hmm. And then having established the credibility of belief in God's existence, so that's the first step, right? Then both apologists argue for the possibility of miracles and then for the possibility of the historical knowledge of such miracles. They then move specifically to Christian claims, making the case for the reliability of the New Testament, and from there to Jesus' claim to deity and the evidence for his res resurrection. And then finally, they conclude that Jesus' resurrection confirms his claims to deity and therefore the truth of all that Jesus taught. So really close, our authors suggest, to the type of approach that uh, Norman Geisler used as well. Right, right. And clearly that, that two-step approach is, is there as well. All right, well, what's our conclusion from this chapter? Although the five apologists uh, profiled in this chapter are all identified with the classical apologetic uh, traditions pioneered by Thomas Aquinas, some distinct differences among them should not be overlooked. Norman Geisler is perhaps the most unremittingly rationalist of the five, by which we mean that deductive logic plays the most comprehensive role in his apologetic. Even Geisler, however, is not a thoroughgoing rationalist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And of course, uh, Kreef, Peter Kreef, and uh, William A. Craig's method differ somewhat from that of Geisler's. So while upholding the rational idea of the deductive proof for theism, Kreef and Craig also draw on a wide variety of arguments that uh, fall short of deductive proof, right? So they don't just stick with deductive arguments. Right. And they employ them in uh, um, in defense both of theism and of Christianity, uh, per se, in kind of a cumulative case argument. And then B.B. Warfield, writing at the beginning of the rise of the reformed apologetic tradition, articulated a fairly traditional classical apologetic. So, you know, all these folks follow this same kind of approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Warfield, who was himself a Calvinist, anticipated in certain respects the reform apologetic of Cornelius Van Til. He mm -hmm. regarded theistic arguments as reminders of the immediate awareness 
of recognition of God that all human beings have because of the creation in the image of God. So he, he was almost there. We, we, we almost had him on our side, but all right, well, we'll, we'll give you one Calvinist and, and we'll, we'll slowly uh, gang ground from there. Well, his affirmation that the facts of Christianity are also Christian doctrines anticipated Van Til's teaching that all facts are interpreted facts. There's no such thing as a brute fact. You, you don't approach a fact and you go, oh, okay, this is uh, evidence for me. Nope, evidence has to be interpreted interpreted and then it has to be classified and codified and discussed as well right yeah and then finally c.s lewis's apologetics uh while broadly fitting the classical model also had affinities with other approaches lewis's uh stock method was to argue first for god's existence and then for christianity uh it's interesting though that uh, in later years he often found it prudent to start immediately with the existence uh, and evidence for Christ's deity because, you know, people kind of already kind of assumed that God exists. So he didn't have to make that argument is what he suggested, right? Mm-hmm. And so in this respect, his later method was similar to that of uh, evidentialism, although his reason for not arguing for theism first was that he found that, uh, you know, people already believed in at least some kind of God, and so it was unnecessary. I, I believe it was, I believe it was in mere Christianity. I, I could be wrong, but he tells of a uh, a, a well-respected atheist that that, uh, that he had as a neighbor, and he said that uh, e- even this uh, ardent atheist uh, wore his nice clothes on Sunday, and and, and his good <laughs> socks while gardening. So you know that that was that was his way of going. Well, you know it is the Lord's day, even though I don't believe He exists. And so it was just a funny story to go. Oh, we would never, we would never have that today. In fact, uh, uh, we're we're happy when people wear long pants to church these days. <laughs> well, okay, so that's kind of the end of our chapter four. In the following chapters, uh, the, our authors say that we'll examine the classical approach in greater detail, drawing on writings from these five classical apologists and other modern apologists who follow in the tradition. So we kind of looked at a historical approach from this, and now we're going to really kind of codify what it means to be uh, a, a classical apologist in, 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 a, in a form where, again, what they said at the beginning of this chapter is that you could have people that disagree with one fact or, or views. Sometimes they can bring in um, uh, other approaches, uh, but for the most part, uh, this is what we mean by uh, the classical uh, apologetics. Yeah, good. All right. So uh, that ends chapter four. And as Patrick mentioned, we'll jump into chapter five next time and look more thoroughly at their uh, arguments with regard to this classical approach. So we will see you next time. See you next time.